Welcome to Unleashing Your Great Work, a podcast about doing the work that matters the most to you. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Kroll, a cognitive psychologist, speaker, coach, and the creator of the Aligned Time Journals. Every week on this podcast, we are asking the big questions. What is great work and why does it matter so much to us? What does it take to do more of your great work without sacrificing everything else? And how does the world change when more people are doing more of the work that matters the most to them? Whether your great work is building your own small business or managing a remote team at a multinational company, you'll find insight and answers here. Today on the Unleashing Your Great Work podcast, I have my very good friend and colleague, Jess LeBlanc. He is an associate professor and the former chair of the Department of Education at Hunter College's School of Education. He's the founder of Hunter College's Urban Center for Assessment, Research, and Evaluation. And for more than 20 years, he has worked in the field of teacher and leadership preparation. As a developmental psychologist, Dr. LeBlanc's research is investigating the impact of developmentally and culturally responsive teaching on school climate. He's a sought-after speaker on the topic of developmentally and culturally responsive teaching and is the author of the recently published Who's in My Classroom? Building Developmentally and Culturally Responsive School Communities, which I have to say I used in my class, and it was an amazing textbook. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I can't wait to hear all about your great work. So why don't we just start right there? Tell me a little bit about your great work. That's a, that's a really interesting question because um, when I think about great work, my first question really is starts with like, what does it mean to be great? Uh-huh. You, know, and, um, you know, so I've been kind of thinking through that a little bit to really think about like, is it a, like a personal investment or the time that I've allocated in something? Is it the quality of the work? or even the recognition you know, of the work. Um, mm-hmm. And so in thinking about what it means to be great, it also makes me think about the things that I value. Mm. Um, and, as, and as I kind of think about that, it kind of leads me down this path of identifying the aspects of my life in which I want to be great in the first place. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, and so as I kind of think about it in that way, I kind of put myself into these different categories. And, and one is as a husband and father first. Yeah. Uh, and so I really think about what does it mean to, to kind of be great in that area? You know, and one of the things that I, pride myself and I can't take full credit for my wife and I've always kind of thought about the raising of our two boys um, in this way we've already thought about the fact that we're raising someone else's husband and someone else's father Uh, and so and so really like what is that what are the things that we want to make sure that we instill in them um, Mm -hmm. so that way we make them the best husband and father that they can be you know in in the future you know and so we've so we've thought a lot about that um, and so for me, I take a lot of pride in, in that level of relationship, you know, that I have with my sons um, and my ability to kind of model the things that I really want them to see um, as evidence of like, what it means to be a good husband and a good father. Uh, and, and so, what are, What's an example of that? But what are some of the things that you wanted to model for them? So time. So, so one of the big things that I've really thought about is a lot of that is, is investment in, in quality time. And I know it sounds cliche, um, mm. But I recognize more and more how easy it is to be physically together, but still be not present. Mm-hmm. Be physically together, but still be absent. Uh, and so, really investing the time in connection. Um, and as they've grown from young boys into men right now, really feeling as though I have an awareness of just their journey, um, taking the time to talk with them, connect with them, um, spending time in activities together. 
um, but really taking that time of investment. And it's been challenging sometimes with all the different things that I'm involved in. I've made sure that I've essentially kind of scheduled time. I know it sounds weird, but scheduling time with family first and then planning everything else around it, mm-hmm. you know, so prioritizing it in that way. Um, I've also been very proud of the fact that I've always been kind of real with them. I've been very truthful with them in terms of what my challenges, what my struggles have been, what my journey has been like, and trying to give them that level of insight into my world, but also helping them to see that they're creating their own path. They're charting mm-hmm. their own path, right? you know? And so helping them also to recognize that whenever, whenever, wherever, um, that they know that I'm there, that I'm there to listen, not always to solve the problems, but at least help them to think them through. Um, that gives me a lot of pride. Um, and, and so to be able to hear that from them through their own mouth, that they appreciate that has been really helpful for me. Uh, and so that, in a sense, has kind of helped me to kind of recognize my impact in that way. Um, and it's something that I really hold dear, uh, something that I really, really value. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that you're involved in a lot of things, which I know to be the case. So how do you, like, what what have you realized or what have you, you know, come to understand that helps you actually balance that? Because that is, a, that is, I think, a universal struggle for people who especially want to do important work, which I know you do, and yet want to be the best possible father and husband as well. It's, it's, it's really interesting that you say that because I was, I was not always good at that. I think I'm getting better at it. Mm. Um, and, I, and I really attribute a lot of that growth in me to my dad. I remember one time just really trying to juggle a lot of different things and trying to do all those things really well. And I remember just talking with him um, and just kind of telling him that I wasn't as happy with my progress with some of my writing and some projects I was working on. And that I was also concerned with my son. Um, and he just basically just stopped me in my tracks and told me that I need to really think about the difference between good and great. And sometimes I have to be accepting of good. Mm. Um, and so you, essentially, it's like you can't be great at everything. So kind of pick what you want to be great at and accept that you're only going to be good in other things. Um, and wow. so this whole journey towards great for me has been prioritizing certain things that I want to be great in at certain times. And, and that's really kind of helped me to kind of wrap my head around this thing. Um, because I recognize that when this, this move towards wanting to be great always comes at a cost. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be willing to accept that cost while at the same time celebrating our successes. Wow. Yeah. You know what I love about that is the idea of like, I mean, we've heard people say there are seasons in your life and it always feels really big. Like this is the season of motherhood, but like your kids are, you're, they're humans for decades. You know, it's like, is, am I done with my season of motherhood? And I like the way that you're sort of talking about like right now in this moment or in this month or in, under these circumstances, like I'm choosing to be great at this and I'm allowing myself to be good at the rest of these things. And that that can shift and change as your priorities free up and change as well. But it feels like it would be actually something you're often thinking about how to pick and choose which ones to be good at, which ones to be great at. Yeah, exactly. And, and I recognize it with my sons and, and where they are now. So I have one in early 20s, one who's a late teens. Mm. And, I, and I see that the, they need you, but they need you in different ways at different times. <laughs> and yeah. so they might not be as needy, quote unquote, or need me as much as they did when they were younger. But when they need me, they really need me. Right. And, so, and they need all of me. And so mm. it's important to kind of recognize and balance that out. Um, because those are the critical junctures sometimes in their lives where they're trying to make key decisions. Um, and the fact that they would turn to me means that I'm a resource 
that they rely upon. And it's important for me to recognize that and to really honor that by being all, all in, all in with my attention, all in with my support, all in with my listening. You know, and, and one of the things that I've kind of really had to remind myself of a lot is the same practices that I found impactful in the work that I do outside of my home are mm-hmm. the same skills and practices that I have to employ when I'm at home. You know, and what, what skills and practices are those? So patience, mm-hmm. listening, you know, these are things. And so sometimes, you know, I recognize that I can sometimes kind of put my best face outside of the house yeah. and needing to recognize I need to turn that inward as well. Um, and so I've really tried to practice the same kind of quote unquote good practices that, 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 that have really helped me um, in my consultative work and other research work that I do um, and really turn those back home. It's the yeah. same amount of detail and care that I that I take outside to take that inside too. Um, I think relationally that becomes critically important. Um, and I also realize that if I if home is good, then other things are good too, right? That's the foundation for everything else, yeah. um, and and vice versa. And so to me, it's important to recognize that. And I think during these past, you know, during the pandemic and the legacy of that, you know, time spent together and really creating those bonds and reconnections were really important. You know, during this time, and so I'm, I'm. So those are some of the some of the kind of specific things that I've really recognized and leaned on um, mm-hmm. that have helped me outside of the house. Yeah. So one quick question, and then I want to hear about the work outside of the house. But I wonder, as you talk about being really mindful and listening and very patient with your work and with your family, I wonder, like, how do you make it so that you can be that patient all the time? Like, are you are you getting time alone? Like, how do you make it so that you've got the resources to be so patient on every front? So, so one of the good things that I have is that I, because of my relationships with both my wife and my kids, they are very real with me too. So Mm. I'm not always patient. Sometimes I'm really annoying. Sometimes (laughs) I'm obnoxious, you know, right. And so they essentially are able to tell me in the most loving, kind, caring way possible, you're kind of being an ass, you know, and that's been very helpful. That feedback is important. Right. Because then that that's what you need sometimes is kind of cold water to kind yeah. of stop and say, you know, this is I'm it's, it isn't about my intent, but about my impact. So I might uh, not intend or I might not intend to be a certain way, but it's not about what I intend. And so if mm-hmm. others are feeling it in a certain way and being impacted in a certain way, that's what really matters. Uh, and so I can say that I'm listening. But if people don't feel like they're heard, then am I really say that I'm present? But if I'm not really fully present, then really am I? And so that's mm-hmm. been that, that distinction between intent and impact has been an important one that I, you know, I think through a lot. Um, I definitely also recognize that by building my relationships, I think for all of us, we see that it's reciprocal. So it isn't about just me being a psychologist in the house and just listening to everybody, but it's yeah. more about my relationship, particularly with my wife and my kids, where I can talk through things as well. So it isn't just a one way by any means. And I think what's happened over time is also being able to model some of that. So modeling that patience and listening is also skills that I think my sons have both also developed. Um, and, and so I think that piece as well is that we're able to be supportive of each other. Um, it isn't a one way by any means, mm-hmm. but, but one of the ways that I've recognized also is that I've had to become much more aware of my own social emotional needs mm-hmm. um, and turn much more inward and be more self-reflective. So I've recognized that um, self-care isn't being selfish and that it's really important to kind of establish a self-care routine um, for everything that I do. Um, and so I, I make sure that I've, there's sort of physical activity, which is a kind of a classic aspect of self-care. Um, but also, I've also thought about just connecting to nature, kind of like the spiritual, kind of in a broad way, right? There's like spiritual needs, addressing yeah. emotional, emotional needs as well. So 
thinking about really who I turn to when I need to be uplifted, you know, and making sure to maintain and nurture those relationships, um, mm-hmm. but also my cognitive needs, which is really more about like, how do I measure my own success? Like, what do I value? What are the things that I'm really looking for to tell me that I'm doing the right thing? And, mm-hmm. and really thought through a lot of that. So I think it's a combination of like recognizing the importance of my kind of self-care needs, but also the kind of framework that I use for myself, which looks at my, my cognitive needs, my emotional, social needs, my physical needs, but also my spiritual needs. Mm-hmm. I think that combination has really helped me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, that, feels, that feels right. So I feel like the point that you made, which I wrote down, I was like, wow, it's not about my intention. It's about my impact. That feels to me like a crux, like something you have learned and learned again in your professional work as well. It sounds so simple, but it's, <laughs> it's taken a, long, it's a really long time to kind of recognize that, that, that difference between those two things. Um, yeah. and, and for me, the impact piece also leads me to kind of think about like, what is my impact? Yeah. How I meant impact, right? Like, and, and, and what do I want my impact to be? You mm-hmm. know, ongoing things. I mean, if I think about my, my research and my, my, my scholarship, you know, for a long time, you know, I've been teaching people who are going to become teachers, you know, school leaders, counselors. And oftentimes I found myself struggling to fill the gaps, you know, in the, in the literature. So yeah. filling the gaps in the textbooks we were using, planting with so many different articles, and always kind of finding the big gap of really not hearing the voice of students in the work that I was kind of teaching. And I kind of thought a lot about, like, what is my impact on my students? Like, if, my, if all my students are in a school someday teaching, and others in the school have been taught by other faculty, like, how can I pick mine out, you know? Like, yeah. what's, what's the mark that I leave on them? And, and so that's where a lot of my kind of struggle around like impact really start to focus much more on like what can I do better to kind of fill the gaps that I've been sort of struggling to fill for a long time. And I was I was in a school one day, I was doing some some work in a school. Um, I've been doing some work in in in, in arts field, particularly theater arts. So I was in a classroom as a theater teacher uh, mm-hmm. in a school sitting in the classroom. And I just had like a morning where I was working on a class that I was teaching for Hunter. And again, just kind of like trying to find the most updated stuff to fill some gaps. And I was sitting in the back of a classroom, like squeezed into this elementary classroom. And I look on the shelf and there's this little Toni Morrison quote. And it says, if you, you know, if you find a book you really want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Uh, (laughs) That that was like the impetus right there, right? Which was kind of like, stop complaining and do something about it. Wow. That was the point. And that's really what led me to start writing the book. And Toni Morrison told you to write your book. I love it. (laughs) Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, you've got to check out the Great Work Community. The Great Work Community is where change-making entrepreneurs make drama-free progress together. Come on over for a co-working, accountability, coaching, and just-in-time courses. Check out the Great Work Community. The link is in the show notes. Well, Jess, tell us, give us the, give us the broad strokes. I mentioned it in your uh, bio, but just tell us what you do. Tell us like your, you, you wrote this book, but what's the real thrust of your work, the umbrella of your work? So, so my big work is really trying to support diversity, equity, and inclusion in schools. You know, mm-hmm. And that's really what my, 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 my big goal is. Uh, and, and so for me, my practice has always been to center youth voice and mm-hmm. everything that I do. 
Um, and so at the foundation of my work is youth voice. And that's really been at the crux of everything that I do. Um, imagine if you walked into a doctor and before you even said anything to the doctor, the doctor would prescribe some medication for you. You'd like, yeah. you'd never go back to the doctor <laughs> again. But yeah. I mean, so many times where all these decisions are getting made about children, all these decisions about policy and instruction and all these different curricular things. And nobody ever asked the students, like they don't mm. even talk to them. And so it's all these decisions that get made by adults who kind of presume, assume, you know, all these different things about students, but really never take the time. Mm. And so for me, that was compounded by the fact that for a number of schools that I'm in, I'm thinking about the lack of voice that BIPOC students have, the mm. lack of voice that, non, that, that gender non-conforming kids have within their schools. And really trying to think, well, if all these districts want kids to feel a sense of belonging, feel a sense of connectedness, to feel a sense of mm -hmm. caring, how do you do that without soliciting their voice? Like, it just didn't make sense to me. Um, yeah. The other, you know what I mean? And the other part that I was really thinking a lot about, too, was what kinds of knowledge bases do teachers, do staff, do administrators really need to have in order to be able to move the needle in this way? Um, mm. And so my work, I've been really interested in the work of cultural responsive teaching for a really long time. But I've always felt that I've always been the stuff that I've been reading to me didn't do enough to really address the development of students mm -hmm. and, and really thinking about their development from the perspective of developmental needs. And so I look at this work in terms of, well, all of our students have developmental needs. So, for example, the need to be intellectually engaged, you know, mm -hmm. a need to feel connected, a need to have movement within the classrooms, a need to develop emotional competence, awareness of what they're emotions are and regulating those emotions. I think all those things are foundational needs. And so for me, if I start with that assumption, then the question is, how do I support those needs in ways that are responsive to who children are, um, in ways that are responsive to the lived experiences? So that was really the thrust of, of, of my research. And, and the thrust of the book was really to blend the fields of developmental psychology and culturally responsive teaching into mm -hmm. what I call developmentally and culturally responsive teaching. And really, the big goal was not strictly about classroom instruction, but really building communities that employ these practices. Hmm. So I've used that same approach, um, not just in terms of teacher and leader development, but also as I work with school districts to address their broader diversity, equity, and inclusivity um, goals, um, where we're really soliciting stakeholder voice throughout the entire process. Hmm. Um, so over the last several years, I've been working with a number of different um, school districts you know, in, the, in the New York City metropolitan area. Um, as they try to kind of come to grips with a new reality that the community that they thought they had really isn't that community. And mm -hmm. so things that they thought were wonderful and great and fine aren't really that way, haven't been that way for a really long time. Um, wow. And so a lot of this work was really spurred after, you know, the, the summer of reckoning and after the killing of George Floyd, it, it really just un, un, un revealed a lot of things that were simmering for a long time, a lot of school districts, which had to do with how BIPOC children and their families, how gender non-conforming children and their families have to a certain degree had to endure, right, and tolerate intolerance for far too long. Can and you so, give us, you know, not naming any names or any school names or anything, but can you give us an example of what was something that seemed like it was totally fine and good that was revealed to be not what they thought it was through well, this process? One big, so one big thing was about language use. Mm -hmm. And so many students had come forward um, writing narratives, bringing attention to school boards about the use of racial slurs, mm. the, ra the use of homophobic language um, in classrooms, um, the way in which certain key topics were being taught. So, for example, 
slavery being taught without the humanity. So mm-hmm. rather than talking about slaves, talking about enslaved people, rather mm-hmm. than talking about slaves at a ca- as a category, talking about enslaved people as moms and dads, as children, as doctors, right. as lawyers who were then enslaved, right? So how that approach has been taken, it became critical. And so people recognize that essentially like we've reached the point where we're not going to take it anymore. Mm-hmm. Where her parents who had been educated in certain school districts says it has to be different for my children and it still seems to be the same. And so we need to move the needle. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's where I have been asked to help support a lot of these local area districts to really rethink how they address these goals. Because of course we know that things are trendy and that it's easy to just kind of check the box as we try to address diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, and so what I've been doing is working with school districts to really establish structures district level Mm. equity committees that involves district level administrators, um, building level administrators, parents, teachers, students, um, all coming together to really talk through around like what are our goals and identifying the goals and then establishing systems for addressing them. Um, Mm. And so the work is really centered in four areas. One is broadly about the culture and climate of a district. And it's important to gather baseline data on the culture and climate because People see culture and climate based on where they live in a community and what their personal experiences have been like. And oftentimes what that means is that the experiences of underrepresented groups tend to go unnoticed. Mm -hmm. Um, Or people tend to kind of say, well, what are you complaining about? You're making a big deal out of nothing, right? And so it's important to gather as much information as possible about the current state of the culture and climate of districts. Uh, And so we've utilized certain certain tools to be able to do that. Um, I also uh, have been very proud of the fact that I've been able to conduct stakeholders in districts. So I get a real sense of how students are experiencing schools, how their parents view things, how teachers, administrators, right? So all different stakeholders. And that becomes a really important starting point to start to center on what are, come the, what are some of the areas that districts need to address in order to advance their, their broader DEI goals. Um, and so assessing climate becomes one key piece, but then we start to center the work on other areas. And so one of the areas, of course, is going to be around the curriculum itself. And so a lot of work is being done now to really look at curriculum. But in order to look at the curriculum, you have to change the lens through which you're looking. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing is really working with educators to really help them to create a different lens, right? If, when you start to look at the curriculum through a DEI lens, it's kind of a different approach. Um, and so what, thinking of- can you, give us, can you just give us an example of that? Like if, what, what lens were they looking for, looking through? What did they see and think it was fine? And well, then how, say, when you switch the lens, how does it change what they see? Yeah, no, great. That's fantastic. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll think about it in this way. Maybe this might help to, to clarify. Mm-hmm. When I work with educators, and this is not my language, but it's something that I lean on a lot. I tell all of the teachers that I work with that their curriculum needs to be both a mirror and a window. Mm-hmm. And so the students need to see themselves in the curriculum, but the curriculum also has to be a way for them to see the rest of the world, right? To be able to see beyond their community, be it, see outside of themselves. And oftentimes what I notice is that the curriculum is oftentimes a window in some settings where there are very few kids of color in the classroom. So it's really reflecting just particular standards within the classroom. Um, And in other cases, it's a mirror, but it's not sufficient mirror. I mean, Mm -hmm. not sufficient window. And so it's limiting in terms of what they're showing. And so part of it then becomes whose voices are getting elevated? What stories are being told about people different from themselves? Um, How is the representation happening? Um, and so we start to interrogate books, we start to interrogate lessons, we start to interrogate practices within school. 
So it isn't just about classroom instruction when we think about the curriculum, because it's, it's also about the assessment practices. And so really thinking more broadly about what are some of the practices that are currently employed and are those practices impediments to children's ability to really reveal their strengths, to be able to mm. be at their best? And so if we have more flexible assessment options, right, more varied assessment tools, will that actually help to reveal student strengths more than by limiting it in the tools that we employ? If we lean heavy on certain graded things, so for example, homework is highly weighted. In some of the schools that I've been, homework has been a really big thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so missing homework means getting zeros. Getting zeros ultimately means failing classes. What are the assumptions that we make about assigning homework? Well, one of those assumptions is that children have a quiet place to go home and do homework, mm -hmm. that they have a resource available to them. So one of the pivots that we've been making is away from homework as a concept and moving towards independent practice. Mm -hmm. And so if the goal of homework is to establish that a child can do something independently, then why not build that into the class day? Why not build that into the class period? Where if you find out that they can't, there's an opportunity to help them to do some correcting. Um, you know what? So, I really, sorry to interrupt you. I, I just really like that because I find that when you try to have conversations with people about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it often becomes this argument about what is, whereas, you know, like, are you actually putting practices in place that, um, that actually disadvantage this group or not? And what does it mean that you're saying that? And what would it mean to admit that you are doing that? And it becomes so tangled so quickly. Whereas if you say, well, why don't we just broaden or like more specify what it actually we're looking for? We want them to have independent practice. Nobody has to admit to have wrongdoing. We don't have to agree on big, massive concepts around race and equity, but instead we can agree, well, we do want them to have independent practice. And now from a user-centered perspective, what's the best way to get that out of the students sitting in this classroom? So it feels like it, Recenters the conversation out of the political milieu and into what's best for kids. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you saying it. Seeing because one of the things that I've also been really proud of is that all of the work that I do in buildings is really grounded in student voice. Mm. So I spend a lot of time doing focus groups with kids, a mm. lot of time. Mm -hmm. And so I talk with the students and I ask them some basic questions, right? So everything from what's your favorite part of the day, um, you know, what's 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 your favorite part of school to questions like, what are some things that your teachers do that help you to learn? And also, what are some of the challenges that you have, right? What are some of the struggles? What are some of the challenges that make it harder to learn in school? Um, and utilizing that information, I can then feed into the professional development work that I do. One of the things that, that I've been doing, particularly most recently, is really trying to help. And this is where the DEI stuff comes in as well, because oftentimes when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, it's really easy sometimes to just center on race. And, and, and so it's important for me to really talk more broadly about diversity, you know, because there's so much, there's within group diversity that people sometimes miss. So, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm in schools where we might be predominantly BIPOC children, predominantly African-American kids. And they may say like, I don't feel connected here because of my religiosity, or mm. I not feel connected because of my sexual orientation like, or mm -hmm. my, about the fact that I may have a disability. It's important to really think about diversity and also include neurodiversity. You know, I might learn mm -hmm. like all these. So, so I've been really working hard to kind of expand the lens of when we think about diversity, because if we fall into the racial and I understand the importance, I recognize why the focus is on racial equity. I get it. But mm -hmm. it sometimes leads us to fall into a trap of thinking that we've developed a system to address, let's say, black people without recognizing the diversity within that group. 
And, mm-hmm. so, and so for me, I wanted to be messy on purpose. I wanted mm-hmm. to be much more layered on purpose, a little bit more complex on purpose. Uh, and so because of that, that's the reason why I rely so much on student voice to really hear from them like what's going on, particularly right now in this kind of quasi post pandemic, but still kind of pandemic time. Yeah, we're kind of right. in school, right? And, and we're noticing like releasing, re- reducing some of the distancing requirements and releasing some of the mask mandates, but the legacy continues. And so mm-hmm. the students have heard a lot about the stressors and we know the disproportionate impact that stress has had, particularly on children living in poverty, um, BIPOC children and their families, right? We understand that. And so for me, it's important for teachers to also, as a developmental psychologist, to understand the impact that stress has on children developmentally. And one of the big things that I've been leaning on is focusing on executive functioning um, mm-hmm. and really looking at the impact of stress on executive dysfunction. Um, so one of the things that I've been doing with schools, and I just did this a few days ago in a school, is I temporarily will meet, periodically I should say, meet with large groups of faculty. So in large rooms, you know, 40, 50 people at a time. And we just do a noticing activity. Essentially, let's talk a little bit about what we're noticing in our students, academically, behaviorally, socially, emotionally. What I want to do is listen to the language that they use as they talk about what they're noticing. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, you'll hear, and it's not always deficit-based, so I can't say that, but oftentimes it's like they're behind, they're needy, they're, you know, it's, it's these kinds of things that happen. And so I really try to unpack that language to try to help them understand, well, this is how these times have impacted on the child in front of you. And that we can reframe the things that we're seeing. So rather than that they're needy, what they're really presenting as is a child who needs a lot more assurance that they're doing the right thing, assurance that they're on the right track, assurance that if they follow these steps, they can expect to be successful. Because some of the behavioral things that people are noticing from my perspective is much more avoidance. And so if we can really help kids to feel engaged, feel connected to the material, feel visible in the material, feel valued by the material that they're learning, they're much more likely to be engaged and therefore less likely to be avoidant. Um, And so these are the kinds of conversations that I'm having to really try to kind of craft that lens so that way people are kind of interpreting the things that they're seeing in front of them in a different way. Um, Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, one of the things that you know, you mentioned, and actually it's a, it's a, maybe part of your book that I loved the most, actually, and it was such a small, it was like a tiny little, it was like what teachers can do <laughs> in one of the chapters. Um, and it was, it was basically, it was talking about um, the notion of always being, uh, always being open to being surprised by your students. Like I forget, it was, it was related to Piaget. And I'm trying to remember exactly how you related it to him. Maybe it was accommodation and always being ready to accommodate new information, perhaps. (laughs) But I remember thinking like this is everything for these teacher candidates and for teachers in schools, because if you it's messy on purpose, it's exactly what you said, because if you are always trying to keep yourself open to new information, then you can't you can't get locked in on thinking you understand something based on your cursory review of it. And that seems to come down. Right. Like the messiness comes, the the surprise comes out of a habit, actually, of listening to your students voice. So I'm wondering if you're talking to the teachers and trying to help them develop their ability to really check in with student voice as well. Yes. And it's interesting that you say that because right now and I think context matters so much. Right. So we're now at a time of year where 
teachers are now concerned, and rightly so, about end-of-year assessments. So whether yeah. they're standardized tests, all those things, at the same time recognizing that there were, there, was, there were learning gaps, there was interrupted instruction, and so there's always that pressure to kind of backfill, to almost teach two years of content in one year because mm-hmm. of the gaps that are present, right? And so what happens then as a result of that is there's a kind of a heavy lean on the kind of transmission of academic information Mm-hmm. To the point that conversations around connecting with students, right, and supporting the social emotional needs is almost viewed as coming at the expense of instruction rather than as foundational to learning. Oh, wow. And so that's where some of that pushback has been is essentially like, I don't have the time to do blah, 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 blah. And often, and my response is sometimes like, you don't have the time to connect with the kids in front of you. Like, how can you teach without right. doing that? Right. And so it's really that pivot. And, and a lot of teachers are doing fantastic jobs of really integrating that into their practice. But I still face some of those struggles where people are really looking at it as at the expense or at the cost of instruction rather than supporting instruction. And so wow. that's sort of what I have to do is kind of like that mindset shift is helping people to really recognize like how important that is right now. When I ask students to talk to me about their teachers and their teachers caring, because I really want them to kind of unpack what that word care means. Like what does care look like? And oftentimes they talk about the, the flexibility, like teachers understand that they have things going on outside of school or they have things mm-hmm. going on on the weekend. So they're flexible with them. You know, they're connecting mm-hmm. with them. You know, those, those kinds of things become really important indicators for children um, that they matter, that it isn't about the chemistry you're trying to teach me, but it's about me first. And so you have that flexibility. Um, more and more I'm working with teams of teachers who I'm working with them to have shared calendars so they can identify when they're going to have things due. Because one of the things that mm. forget is that you kind of teach from in your own kind of bubble and you forget that mm-hmm. the children have like eight of you or seven of you, right? And, and so I went to ask teachers, what was a realistic amount of homework every night? And, you know, some of the answers like, oh, 45 minutes, an hour. I was like, well, they'd probably have about six hours of homework every night, you know, if that wow. would be So if we start to think collectively about like what's realistic, how do we plan out things collaboratively? So that way, yeah. we can, so I have certain schools where teachers might do like, we're going to do math every, like math is only on Wednesdays. Like you're going to get it. And then everybody else plans around other things. So you're yeah. not jammed up with stuff like on a Friday when you have five tests in a row. Um, yeah. also in terms of even taking some of those good practices that people were kind of forced to employ during the pandemic and not throwing them all away. And so mm. for example, um, having sometimes faculty will post assignments for the week on a Sunday night. And everything is due the following Friday by 11 o'clock, let's say. And then kids mm-hmm. have the opportunity to pick what works best for them in order for them to be able to be at their best to do their assignments throughout the week. Um, well, and they're developing the ability to manage their own workflow, which is exactly. hugely difficult. Exactly. This is such important work. And I'm, I'm just curious about you. Are you, is this personally relevant to you? Did, did you have a life experience of feeling like, your voice wasn't heard in your education or that your kids' voices weren't heard? Like, how does this resonate with your own experience? So, so my answer is yes and yes. And so mm-hmm. you know, as, as, a, as a Black male um, educated in, in New York, and so, so I had an interesting journey because my dad was in the military. And so I started, I was born in the Bronx. I was in elementary school, Catholic elementary school. I think it's important to ground it in that way first. <laughs> and then when I was in, so that's a whole different kind of experience. Right. <laughs> um, until I was like second grade, roughly in the second grade. And then my family moved to the Virgin Islands. So there I was educated um, in the Virgin Islands all the way up until I was going to high school. 
Um, mm. so the things that I didn't see when I was in the States, I saw firsthand when I was in, in, on the island of St. Croix. What I mean by that was teachers who looked like me, who looked like my parents. I had mm. an elementary school. I had four um, black male teachers in elementary school. Wow. That's really That's unusual. Cool. Exactly. So <laughs> I had these kind of interesting experiences where I expected to be able to be successful because I saw it all around me. You know, the doctors mm. I went to look like my dad and my mom, the lawyers, everybody, the politicians, our governor and senators, all, there was never any time when I was in that period of my life where I didn't think like anything was possible because like the old Kantian expression, the actual represents the possible. That's kind uh-huh. of that's what I saw and lived. And then when I came yeah. back up here, when we, because of the military, my dad's position, we moved back up to the States. Then I became, you know, one of very few kids of color in my classes when I was in high school. And so I just shifted automatically from being in a space where kind of I didn't where race wasn't sailing it into being in a space mm-hmm. where it was really sailing all over again. And I started to mm-hmm. really recognize the gaps in my instruction, or I got to see how my race served a certain purpose in the classroom. So for example, it was not uncommon when conversations around black people came up. It was kind of like, what do black people think, Jess? You know, <laughs> I remember needing to kind of, by the time I got to like my junior in high school, I actually stopped one time and sarcastically said, oh, we just had a meeting. And this is what <laughs> we it happened so many times. And wow. so I, that kind of stuck with me. Uh, and then when I went away to college, I, I, I went to Cornell. And, and when I went to Cornell, I remember purposefully really trying to seek out, you know, people who looked like me and connecting. I, you know, I stayed in a dorm, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things to, to ensure that that community was much more like the community that had kind of given me comfort in my earlier formative years. But I've always had this kind of sensitivity to not feeling visible or valued by the things that I was taught. Um, Mm. And so even throughout my graduate education as a psychologist, it was always about like, what are the voices being silenced? What are the norms that we're using to establish these theories? It's all those things that kind of always kind of stuck with me. And I kind of took that into the work, the practice that I do, you know, within schools is just like valuing the voice of the people in front of you. Um, and, wow. and that's really been the through line all the time, all the way through. Um, also to recognize and value people as experts in themselves, as parents, as experts in their children, you know, mm-hmm. really soliciting those things. Like, like Louis Moll says, talking about funds of knowledge, you know, really thinking about how much you miss by not asking those kinds of questions, you know, and, and wow. so me to be able to improve my practice, it was much more about really recognizing like what would just happen if I just closed my mouth and listened, you know, what, mm. what's the value of that, you know, and that kind of that quiet contemplation and listening has been very, very helpful for me um, in terms of thinking about myself as a, as, as a, as a parent, as a husband, myself as a, as a scholar, myself as a practitioner, you know, all those things have been very, very helpful for me, but it's been such a learning journey. And that's been the piece that's been the most motivating. One of the things that I've recognized is that I learn a lot by listening. That, that's been very, very helpful for me. So learning about, as a developmental psychologist, you know, we've, we've you know, read all the books, we've, we've got all the, you know, we've got that level of knowledge, but then really understanding youth, understanding their experiences, their lived experiences. And I can't say that I have like full knowledge, but it's really the process of seeking to understand that's been the most valuable. It's really that time. It's helped me to build relationships with the students in the schools where I work because they recognize that here's an adult taking the time to really listen, to actively listen. I take tons of notes, you know, and, and, I, and I provide a lot of feedback um, to the schools. One of the practices that I'm really proud of too is that the, you know, the leaders of the buildings where I work, 
we usually will launch the school year by talking about the things that the students have raised in the prior year and say, come based on student feedback, here are some changes that we're making. And so it's been really helpful for me because I also want students to feel that it's just not about that you're talking, but that there's action as a result of it. And so I really want to reinforce that importance of that advocacy, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's been great, you know, a byproduct of me working in these schools is unfortunately, oftentimes I am the only black male in the school I am. It's not uncommon. Uh, and so I've also found that particularly for children of color, they tend to kind of, we, we spend a lot of time talking. You know, we have a chance to really talk and connect um, in my work with the broader district equity teams as well with students on those committees. We've had a chance to connect. So it's been very, very helpful for me to really have a real kind of on the ground understanding of of how children kind of living these times and how important it is to have that information inform instructional practices, inform decision making at the leadership level. I think it's just a beautiful and rare skill that you have centering the voice of other people at the center of your work. So I, I just really appreciate that. And I really appreciate you. And I bet that there are people who are hoping that you might be able to help them in their school with some of this. So if somebody wanted to get to know a little bit more about you or see what it's like to work with you, how would they go about doing that? Well, the best way to, to learn about me and my approach, I, I think, is through my book. I think my book gives a good indication of um, my approach um, and also um, my philosophy of how I go about centering the voice of students. Uh, I think in the book, I also provide some insight into the ways in which we can think about the implications, not just at the classroom level, but also at the building level. Um, and in my book, I also do make a connection between my work and the broader work that I do to address issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, with some lessons learned baked in there. So, so, I, so I would recommend if you're interested in learning a little bit more about my approach and my work, I think the book is a great place to start. Um, I'm also available just on justleblanc.gmail.com is a way that people have been reaching out to me. So I've been hearing from people utilizing the book. Um, I've already been connecting with some of them about possible uh, professional development opportunities. Um, the book is also a collaboration with an organization called Youth Communication and Youth Communication and I have also been providing uh, professional development um, services uh, for in the past. Um, and we're pre presenting at conferences as well, um, utilizing components of the book. Uh, and so working with youth communications and youth communications is a long history of providing professional development support. Uh, and so sometimes um, I can connect individuals with youth communication if it's specific things that, that they're pretty good at, or we work collaboratively together. Um, and I'm also available by LinkedIn. And so people have been reaching out that way as well, just to stay connected. Uh, and so I'm happy to, to, to reach out or be connected to anybody who's interested in the book or learning more about my work, or if I can provide any support, um, either at the classroom level or at the building level. Uh, so I look forward to, to being connected with people who are interested in, in uh, connecting with me in the future. That's great. So I will put a link to the book in the show notes and to your email address and to your LinkedIn. Um, and I just really, you know, I really appreciate the time that you've taken. We've had a few technical issues. So if your patience has been, I'm sure, taxed a little bit. So I really appreciate it. And I just want to add my own personal recommendation that anybody who's thinking about schools and or even if you have children in schools, Jess's book is, is just a really great way to understand the broader context of urban schools and the lived experiences of students in schools where um, their needs are sometimes met well and sometimes uh, met less well. So it's a, a truly remarkable book. You did a great job. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. 
Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You know, I'm passionate about this work. I hope the passion <laughs> came through. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed just talking about the work. So, so thank you again. Thank you, Amanda, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Unleashing Your Great Work podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And hey, don't forget to check out the Align Time Journal. You need support to get started. Stay at it and unleash your great work out into the world. See you next time.